Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, stupid, dumb, filthy, worthless, poor street rat. <laughs> yes, Jason has taken the uh, occasion of this lovely Disney movie to explore his self-loathing and really the self-loathing of all the pores, Josh. That's what I took from this movie that of course Disney that, hates poor people. That is that is probably true. Um, so <laughs> what are we doing here? We are kicking off our latest season. This is our 12th season. And uh, we are looking at the films of 1992. So we're back into the 90s. This is our fourth season, I think, to look at the 90s. So much like a VH1 show. Is it really? The 90s. Yeah, yeah, it is. You're yes, right. It is. So, I am. And Josh, you know, we uh, when we posted that uh, this was going to be our next season, we got more feedback than ever before. So it looks like the audience is as excited as we are for 1992. And we love all that feedback. Yeah, it was a, it was amazing to get such a great response. So we're excited to take a look at all of these films that we're going to talk about this season. Hopefully, some of which are movies that people were excited about, and um, we'll have to take a look at all those suggestions and maybe, uh, you know, put in a few additions as we get to the end of the season. But for now, as we always do, we are kicking off the season with the number one movie at the box office, and in 1992, that was the Disney film Aladdin. One of the movies of the so-called Disney Renaissance. Disney is so dominant in everything right now that we forget that they had these down periods. And a few years before this, Disney animation was considered to be struggling. And when The Little Mermaid was released in 1989, it was this massive creative and financial resurgence that was followed up by Beauty and the Beast in 1991, which was, the, I believe, the first animated movie ever nominated for Best Picture. And then with Aladdin. So this was coming into sort of an environment where there were huge expectations. Now, just a few years earlier, there had been no expectations for these Disney films. And now suddenly there's very, very high expectations. And it met them certainly in terms of financial success, grossed $504.1 million worldwide on its budget of $28 million. And one of the things I found fascinating is that this movie is the number one grossing movie of the year, but it debuted at number two at the box office in its first week. So it really- Behind what? Behind Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Mm, mm. With a cameo from Donald Trump. Yes, yes. <laughs> An enduring classic. Um, so Josh, this is the first animated movie to ever break that 500 million mark. It's also at the time was the highest grossing animated feature ever until The Lion King, another picture from the Disney Renaissance, took it over. And then a film that we talked about in our very first episode ever. Probably our worst episode. First is the worst, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's that, how it is the, for all podcasts. Yeah. But uh, but you know what, Josh? You you mentioned the Disney Renaissance, and I think one of the most fascinating things about researching Aladdin was looking at what like colossal figures were behind the scenes here, the directors, you know, the songwriters and how they were really pillars of this renaissance. Right. That was the key thing. Uh, the directors, uh, Ron Clements and John Musker and the songwriters, uh, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman had worked on those previous films. And uh, Howard Ashman, who is the lyricist, 
came up with the original idea for this film that as as happens with all, almost all of these Disney movies, even now it goes through like years of development and it changes a lot. But he was sort of the spark behind it and sadly passed away in the midst of production of this film. And so about half the songs, I think, feature his lyrics and the other half feature lyrics from Tim Rice, who would go on to become a major Disney lyricist um, after this. And good for Tim Rice, because really, what was he doing before this? Oh, yeah. Writing shows with Andrew Lloyd Webber and the guys from ABBA. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, was and continues to be the most successful person in the world. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. quite (laughs) successful. But I mean, uh, Howard Ashman was so beloved, multiple like reviews and commentaries on this film mentioned the sort of downgrade that that you can supposedly tell from the songs with the Ashman lyrics versus the songs with the Tim Rice lyrics. I think that's a bit exaggerated, but certainly Ashman was was hugely beloved at the time uh, of his death. Yeah. And you know what I read? It's kind of a sad uh, statistic. No, he has the uh, record for most posthumous Academy Award nominations. Um, yeah. So that's pretty sad. But, you know, he uh, he definitely built his legacy as a songwriter with the uh, Disney team. At the same time, you know what he suggested, uh, Ka- Jeffrey Katzenberg, you, you know, who was running the studio at the time, took, um, you know, took this in a very different direction than what uh, Ashman first wanted. And, you know, they didn't greenlight it at first. And there was this whole thing where they had done the whole script and and maybe even shot a lot of it. But um, uh, Katz, it was called Black Friday. Katzenberg demanded a full rewrite and refused to move the release date of the film. So uh, a very risky move that paid off for him. Yeah, I mean, Katzenberg is kind of a tyrant and continues to be known that way all the way through Quibi. But um, which we will be devoting a whole. Uh, I was almost on Quibi. <laughs> um, awesome Quibi, few months. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. That would have been my big break, you know. To be Quibi. on Quibi, yeah. I had a, you know, I was supposed to be on it. I don't know if you know that. So. I do, yeah, on, yeah. Uh, on a stand-up comedy show, right? Yeah, yeah. When I had uh, done the uh, Democratic Caucus, a gig that I was recommended by Dave and Gina to to mm. host. Uh, one of the producers from a stand-up show on Quibi watched my set and he said, this is, and he produces stand-up comedy. And he said, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen in stand-up comedy. I want you to do this stand-up show on Quibi. And then, um, and then uh, COVID came and, you know, I know a lot of people don't have sad stories about COVID, but that's mine. <laughs> so yeah. there are other sad stories. Between COVID and the shutdown of Quibi uh, that put so many people out of work. The sad thing is Jason didn't get to appear on a stand-up show. On yeah. Quibi. Because they couldn't film it because of COVID. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. And then the, the, the service ceased to exist. But um, I blame anyway. Kevin Hart for that. <laughs> that seems right. <laughs> anyway, what are we talking about? We're talking about Aladdin. Prince Ali And thank goodness Jason is singing. So, uh, yeah, a long, long, long development for this film. But what I was going to say about Katzenberg before we got off track there is that he is known as kind of this tyrant. But you're right that it paid off whatever he whatever instinct he had about making changes to this movie was right, because you read about some of the original ideas compared to what they ended up going with and and everything that they ended up doing seems like the right thing. You know, sometimes you can read about these films and you hear about what was in the original script or what might have been shot and cut out and you think, oh, that was better or that should have been left in. But I I don't think that's the case here. So everything turned out really, really well. 
Obviously, it was a huge box office hit. It was nominated for five Oscars, and it won two of them, including Best Original Score for Alan Menken and Best Original Song for A Whole New World, which was one of the Tim Rice songs. But as you pointed out with Howard Ashman, he did get his posthumous nomination for Best Original Song for the song Friend Like Me, was also nominated for Best Sound and Best Sound Effects Editing. Um, At the Golden Globes, it won Best Original Score and Best Original Song for A Whole New World. It was nominated for Best Picture. And Robin Williams received a Special Achievement Award, which seems like just some shit they made up. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. I'm going to disagree with you here for two reasons. One, uh, they said, first of all, uh, you know, and this goes to the legacy. Robin Williams was the first major star to kind of lead into this voice acting. They went from casting traditional voice actors to stars. So. Right then and there, you know, he's kind of changed the whole game on the whole thing. Plus, he improvised so much. They said when he was done, they had 16 hours of footage they could cut from. And they refused to uh, give this thing an uh, adapted screenplay nod because so much of it was improvised by Robin Williams. So I think a special achievement is well warranted for Robin Williams in this case. I'm just saying that the Golden Globes probably thought, well, we got to get Robin Williams here. And not to diminish his achievement on this film, but the Golden Globes are known for... You're diminishing his achievement on this film. I don't think so. I'm I'm trying to diminish the Golden Globes, which are known for finding excuses to get celebrities to show up and to be promoting their, their event. And so they make up an award for him because maybe they're worried like, oh, he didn't get a nomination. Um, so we're not going to be able to, to spotlight this famous guy in this big popular movie. So we'll give him this other award. Not that it wasn't deserved, but it wasn't. Uh, well, then if it was deserved, then then what's what's your point? My my point is that the Golden Globes are adding things randomly because they want celebrities to show up. OK, but if they did one for the right reason, let's just give them that one. They suck most of the time. But here they were actually right, Josh. I mean, if they want to really reward him for the right reason, they could have nominated him for Best Supporting Actor and let him win that award. But they didn't. Well, they didn't. They gave him a special achievement. But also, Josh, you have to remember this was at a time, as we said, where like big stars weren't doing this. So this was something new. So maybe they didn't know how to categorize him. For this. They didn't know how to nominate an actor for his best supporting performance. Yeah, I don't think so. How many of how many voice actors were nominated before this? No, and none and none since either. But that's not a reason to say that, that it couldn't happen or that it shouldn't happen. Um, and in fact, we can lead into the reviews or Jason has another point to make about this. I'm just going to say, Josh, this attitude is why I have never had a friend like you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Uh, but I did want to lead into the reviews here because this is a point actually that Gene Siskel makes in the Siskel and Ebert segment. They both liked this movie. They gave it two thumbs up, but they, they were both kind of measured on it. And this just comes up in, in, almost all of the reviews I found that even the very positive reviews compare this somewhat unfavorably to The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast saying, you know, as good as this movie is, it's not as good as those two that had kind of led this Disney renaissance. But but one thing that Siskel and Eber talk about, I, everyone highlights Robin Williams in this, and Gene Siskel says that he should be nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, which of course is not something that happened and has not happened since, as you pointed out. Well, let's hear your uh, review then, Josh. My review? Your, your, your quoting of the review of their review. Yeah, so. well, that was that was Siskel and Ebert. Um, and so Roger Ebert, in, in his written review, said, the genie is the best thing in the movie. 
which is good fun, but not on a par with The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, the two films with which Disney essentially gave rebirth to feature-length animation. The weakness of the film is in its leads, a street urchin named Aladdin and a sultan's daughter, Jasmine. As a romantic couple, they're pale and routine, especially compared to the chemistry between Beast and the Beauty. They look unformed, as if even the filmmakers didn't see them as real individuals. The bottom line is that Aladdin is good, but not great, with the exception of the Robin Williams sequences, which have a life and energy all their own. Uh, I think that's a pretty fair statement. Yeah, they're very bland leads. I mean, obviously, Yago by uh, Gilbert Gottfried is the other big comic element here. So I don't disagree with that, Josh. Um, but I did want to tell you the best supporting actor nominees of the year. Gene Hackman won for Unforgiven, which we will cover later in this season. Uh, Jay Davidson for The Crying Game. Jack Nicholson, A Few Good Men, Al Pacino, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and David Pamer, Mr. Saturday Night. So maybe Robin Williams fits in there, but that's a good strong category right there. I mean, a couple of those I haven't seen, but I, I, I can think that Robin Williams, especially given the Hollywood uh, sort of support for Robin Williams and affection for Robin Williams, I, I think he absolutely could have fit in there. And if Robin Williams had given this kind of sort of scene stealing performance in a live action movie, he might very well have been in there. I mean, the other issue is not only voice acting, but also the Academy is kind of hostile to comedy performances, which this certainly is. So, and animation in general. You add those yeah. two together, and yes, that's true. Although this was just one year off from Beauty and the Beast having become the first animated film nominated for Best Picture, so it was a time when they seemed maybe a little more open to animation. Yeah, I guess, but they didn't have any, you know, acting nods for that either. So no, yeah. you're right. You're right. They are. They they don't respect comedy. I don't know. Animation's probably gotten a little better, but it's still like boxed in. Yeah. Either way, Aladdin, you know, like, I, I think you're really driving the stake on this one, Josh. Okay. Um, but to go back to your e campaign for Robin Williams is many years too late, Josh. It, 30 it, it, to be exactly. It is indeed. And I don't even really like Robin Williams, although I, I do enjoy him in this film. But uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that later, probably. But to go back to Ebert's review, I, I think he's maybe a little too harsh on these lead characters being bland. I think because you have such big supporting characters. You've got Robin Williams. You've got, as you mentioned, Gilbert Gottfried as Iago. Plus, Jafar, the villain, is one of the all-time great Disney villains. And he's not funny, but he's definitely big. Jonathan Freeman, who voices him, gives this very big performance, and he's a dominating presence. And so I think you want the leads to be the normal kind of... Uh, audience identifying characters, you don't want them to be crazy and wacky and over the top. And so they end up seeming bland just in comparison to all these other big over the top supporting characters. Yeah, I will say this. I watched this with my daughter, Scarlett, you know, and she said, you know what I hate about movies like this is that the princess, all she can do is wait for a man to save her. And that like is a young kid saying that. And, you know, so for her to and, you know, we kind of started talking about like, brave and movies like where there's a Moana, more active female protagonists. But um, for a kid to recognize that from this uh, uh, renaissance of D Disney is a is a really valid point. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, the, the thing about that is that Jasmine was more proactive than a lot of other Disney princesses had been up to this point. And of course, as you point out, it's developed a lot more since then. But yeah, that's absolutely true that the default 
is for a character like that to to just sit around and, and wait to be rescued. Jasmine, at least, has some agency in that she doesn't, you know, she expresses that she doesn't want to be married off and she actually does sort of run away from the palace and try to have her little adventure going incognito in the city and does a lot more things unprompted on her own than a lot of Disney princesses would have done in the past, even if ultimately the story does involve her being rescued by Aladdin. Right. And then in the original concept for this movie, she was supposed to be married off by her 16th birthday. Which is also probably uh, within a, a good change of Disney princesses. Yes, a good, a good change, change that they didn't a go good with change. that. Yes, yes. But at the same time, something that is, is it doesn't surprise me that that was the original idea because that's kind of the Disney tradition there up to this point. Yeah. And, um, you know, when you watch this on uh, Disney Plus now, they do have that warning of like, hey, a lot, uh, some of this is uh, stereotypical or offensive. But um, and I'm glad they leave. I, I don't mind those warnings, but I am glad they leave the content as is to say, like, this is something we did and you can learn from it. So I, I, I respect that. at least. Yeah, I appreciate that, too, that it's not been censored. But at the same time, they're aware that there's some harmful depictions here and it allows, you know, if you watch it with your daughter, it allows you the chance to potentially discuss those things. And that's something that came up at the time, too. In Roger Ebert's review, he also devotes time to talking about how this is a stereotypical depiction of Arab culture, the way the characters are drawn. Um, so it wasn't something that we only kind of became aware of later on when Disney Plus put a warning on there. Even at the time it came out, people were talking about this and the way that it used these stereotypes in a potentially negative way. Right. It wasn't just that. There's that whole idea. Um, one of the Robin Williams things that he's done a lot is kind of that flamboyant um, character who's a prop master, clothing designer, whatever it is, you know who he is. And and they asked about that. Do they think that's a stereotype? And I thought they were fair in that said, like, he played a lot of different characters and some people are that big and that's OK. Yeah, I mean, and, and in addition to that, there's a lot of little I mean, because he's just doing these quick hit little bits. I mean, a lot of them are based on just like a stereotypical kind of voice about an ethnic group or a national group or whatever. And, you know, it may or may not be offensive to particular people when it comes up for two seconds, but there's an overall awareness of that is something that the comedy relies on. Yeah. Josh, what's your favorite ethnic stereotype to portray? Let's talk about this review from <laughs> Janet Maslin in the New York Times who was also mixed to positive. She said, if the makers of Aladdin had their own magic lamp, it's easy to guess what they might wish for. Another classic that crosses generational lines as successfully as Beauty and the Beast did and moves as seamlessly from start to finish. Aladdin is not quite that, but it comes as close as may have been possible without a genie's help. The fundamentals here go beyond first rate. Animation both gorgeous and thoughtful, several wonderful songs, and a wealth of funny minor figures on the sidelines, practicing foolproof Disney tricks. Only when it comes to the basics of the storyline does Aladdin encounter any difficulties. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a straightforward, you know, right, uh, you know, A to B to C to D plot. I think that's fair. Yeah, but I don't think that's a problem. And I think, you know, when they made these changes, then eliminated maybe some extraneous elements to the plot. It, it makes it easy to, I mean, not just easy to follow for kids, but easy to get involved in. We know exactly what the stakes are. We know what all these characters want and we we can care about 
how they achieve that. So I, I don't really have a problem with that. I don't either. I mean, you know, you're not looking for these big twists, uh, you know, in a Disney movie, you know, so I thought it worked fine. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So uh, finally, Kenneth Turan in the LA Times was more fully, fully enthusiastic. He said, Aladdin is a film of wonders. To see it is to be the smallest child, open-mouthed at the screen's sense of magic, as well as the most knowing adult, eager to laugh at some surprisingly sly humor. To achieve either would be something. To manage them both in the same film is next door to amazing. Not only is the film's intense, almost electric palette something new for Disney, but the visual style, aided by judicious use of innovative computer animation, has a kaleidoscopic split-second liveliness that makes Beauty and the Beast seem on the old fogey-ish side. To paraphrase Howard Ashman, there ain't never been a film like this, and aren't we the lucky ones to have it now? So he was really rapturous. About uh, and a little over the top and ridiculous about it too. But as far as the animation style, you know, that was um, uh, influenced by Al Hirschfeld. I always like those Al Hirschfeld cartoons, those, uh, you know, sketchy cartoons. So that, that was pretty cool. Yeah, especially the genie, I think, most of all, and the way he transforms um, into various characters and uh, ethnic stereotypes was heavily influenced there. Um, but I do think the visual style here overall is quite impressive. This was still was one of the earliest Disney movies to use some elements of computer right. animation. And I think it fits in more seamlessly than when they used it in Beauty and the Beast, as far as I can remember. And yeah, it just looks it looks beautiful, I, I think. And the way that they took all of that crazy Robin Williams improv material and visualized it, which, you know, he sort of vomits up a bunch of comedy bits. And then these animators are left having to put that on screen. That's a difficult task. And they really live up to it. I had read that the studio was uh, unconvinced at some point in casting Robin Williams. You know, they were going to go to Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy, John Candy were the names that I had read. And that they had the animators animate um, uh, kind of uh, Robin Williams stand up, but they took some of his stand up and did animation over it. And that was what convinced both Williams and the studio. So it's good that they had that practice for a guy who's so lightning fast. Right. And he clearly was the right choice. Of course, Eddie Murphy ended up um, in Mulan doing a very similar kind and of Shrek. And Shrek, too, but <laughs> Shrek isn't a Disney movie. Um, I mean, obviously, all those guys are extremely talented, and I'm sure they all would have been good, but definitely that manic energy of Robin Williams is is perfect for this. Right, and the genie wasn't really supposed to be that character either, because I, I think that Ashman wanted him more as like a Cab Calloway kind of like big band crooner, band leader, like, you know, kind of showman uh, MC type and everything. Um, so this became a, an organic character and Josh, while he did not get an Oscar nomination, he did win best comedic performance at the MTV movie awards. Ah, oh, yes. The prestigious MTV movie awards. Yeah. I mean, this movie got, I don't know if you have any other ones you wanted to mention, but it did get a ton of awards, of course, from, from the Oscars all the way down to, you know, regional film critics groups and stuff like that. I'm going to mention all of them. <laughs> all right. Here we go. Um, so, I mean, this is a movie that came out when we were kids. Uh, did you watch it when it came out, Jason? I didn't see it in the theater, but I did. I feel like I must have seen it as a teenager, you know, when we used to rent movies all the time and and, and, and watch movies that we rented after mm. we rented them. That's you would how rent it works. them and you would watch them. 
yeah. think I must have rented Aladdin and then watched it maybe with a group of friends. I have friends. I don't know when I first saw it, but I've seen it a few times over the years, Josh. This time I was a little fatigued on it, I have to admit. Yeah, and the, you you watched it with your daughter. Was this the first time she had seen it or had she watched it before? No, we we have watched it before together as well, you know, yeah. so that that's always nice to watch it with her. And I thought really good insight from her this time. Yeah, no, she's absolutely right about that. Um, I, I'm sure I did see this movie also not in the theater, but I'm sure on VHS. This was a period, and I think I probably talked about this in our Lion King episode, when I was a teenager and my younger siblings were really into these Disney movies, especially my sister. And I think, you know, as teenagers are, I was like, that's not cool. I'm not into those movies. I don't want to watch them. But I think I did see Aladdin. Um, that was I was young enough that maybe I just caught that. And by the time The Lion King came out, I was too cool for it. So The Lion King, I never saw until I was an adult, as I'm sure we talked about then. But this I had seen as a kid. And I remember I watched it again before the live action remake came out a few years ago and watching it now. I, I quite like this movie. I, I like it more than Beauty and the Beast. I think this is one of my favorite Disney animated movies. It's just a lot of fun to watch. When you watched it as a kid, did you like it? Maybe. I don't remember. I feel like it's all sort of tied up with those reactions where if like my sister liked something, I was not, that's, allow, I did not allow myself to like it. <laughs> that's what I was going to ask. Like if you liked it and you hid your like of it, like, yeah, whatever, I guess. Yeah, you know? no, that is, that is very, very, very possible that that's what happened. Um, I don't remember for sure. I definitely had seen it. And it's also one of those things that I'm sure, uh, you know, my brother and sister, I would have had it on VHS and probably watched it a lot. And I would have you know, been in the room watching bits of it at various times and being like, this is so dumb. But um, I definitely did see it. Uh, back well, back. shout out to Brandy, one of our loyal listeners. Uh, easily the best of the Bell siblings. Thank you. Thank you. Or I don't know if that's a, an insult to me or to my brother. But Well, you're probably number two. Jeff's a real bastard. Well, it's a good thing he doesn't <laughs> listen to this podcast. <laughs> anyway, uh, Dave, did you see this movie as a kid? I'm pretty sure I saw it in the theater. Um, I and I'm sure I saw it a few times back then. I, I went through a little Disney phase in, in my early teens and liked all these movies a lot. I haven't seen it since back then, though. Uh, yeah. This was my first time watching it in at least 20, 25 years. Did you ever try to write music that approximated Disney songs? I, I don't think I would have any idea how to do such a thing. Like I, I, I think it's like magic what they do in these freaking movies, you know? <laughs> That that it is. It is pretty. It is pretty amazing. So, uh, anything else on the background of this film, Jason, that you'd like to mention? Well, no. We keep talking about VHS. It also made five hundred million dollars on VHS. So you think of that plus all the merchandising tie-ins, which you know that caused a huge rift with Robert Williams in the studio because he signed us a contract that basically said he would do it, but he kind of didn't want to be used in the advertising. And then, of course, they used him anyway. Uh, lastly, Josh, do you have a favorite of, cause you mentioned a few of these from the Disney Renaissance. Do you have a favorite of them from that era? Uh, I mean, this might be my favorite. I haven't revisited a lot of them. Um, I mean, I haven't seen the little mermaid in, in decades, so I can't say I saw, I rewatched beauty and the beast because of the remake. And, uh, we watched the lion King, of course, for this podcast and both of those I'm kind of lukewarm on. So I don't know at what point that era is considered to have ended, but um, I think with Tarzan and I've never seen Tarzan and I've never seen Hercules, so I can't say for sure. But but of of what I can recall, this is probably my favorite. Yeah, I think it's Little Little Mermaid for me. How about you, Dave? Yeah, I think uh, Little Mermaid as well. Yeah, that, that's, that's oh, in your face, Josh. 
I mean, I, I might think that too. I just haven't seen it in so long. I'm sure when that when that remake comes out, I will revisit it. And yeah, can, uh, which is we, being made as we've talked about. Of in the course, past, it is so. every single one. We're gonna get down to the live action remake of the Rescuers Down Under. I'm sure, or the live one. action remake of the live action remake of Aladdin. Mm. Oh, that's gonna happen too. We just we're just a few years off from that. So where Will Smith slaps Aladdin for making fun of Jasmine's hair. We can look forward to that. Uh, We'll come back and talk more of our general thoughts on Aladdin. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this premiere of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about the number one movie at the box office, Disney's Aladdin. And as I said, this is maybe my favorite of this Disney Renaissance era and and one of my favorite Disney animated musicals overall. I mean, even going into the current era, I think this movie is really entertaining. Uh, Most of it holds up really well, uh, racial stereotypes aside, which are certainly (laughs) a a concern. But the music, the songs in this movie are really, really strong. You know, we talked about Tim Rice having replaced Howard Ashman as a lyricist, and maybe his wordplay or whatever isn't quite as sophisticated, but I think this, all of the songs from from both lyricists here are really, really good. What is the hate on Tim Rice going? <laughs> like, he's literally, as we said, one of the most successful people ever in his industry. Let, leave this guy alone, you know? But um, do you have any favorite songs? I mean, honestly, I'm kind of a sucker for a whole new world. It's a super, super cheesy ballad. But it is honest. It's one of the best, like, cheesy pop Meh. ballads ever. No? You're, you're a, a fan? You're a real... Now you've just moved down below Jeff on the Bell oh, man. family spectrum. There's only one right answer to this question, and it's Prince Ali. It's, and that's a great song. It's the song best song ever. Yeah. It's so good. They're well, all n- really good. Nah, nah, you ain't never had a friend. That one's a good one, that, too. That, that's so. my second favorite, of course. But, I mean, I yeah. think that's the thing here is that these songs are all really, really, really strong. You know, yeah. that, that a lot of these Disney movies, you watch them and you remember there was like one big song. And then you watch the movie and you're like, oh, I guess there were these other ones, too. Well, these are not really worth much. But this movie, every song is a really, really strong number, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that goes, you know, when we're talking about this renaissance, the model was set by The Little Mermaid with that soundtrack. Because you're, you're right. It is like, oh, we can have this and this and this and this. But yeah, it's interesting how that, uh, how that worked. Right. And I think to go back to what we're saying, like about Tim Rice, I think it was less that people didn't like Tim Rice and more that just people were so in awe of Howard Ashman and he died young and people are paying tribute to him. And so they're saying he's so brilliant. And this other guy is maybe slightly less brilliant. Um, and over time, Tim Rice became a major Disney lyricist and I think was appreciated. Yeah, it's it's also you got to remember. Uh, and yes, we want to revere those who uh, deserve that reverence like Ashman did. But it's a really tough position to come in and fill the shoes of a legend, especially at the prime of his career. Right. Yeah, of course. I'm sure that was tough. And that's, I'm sure, also why they hired someone like Tim Rice, who all already had those massive successes like you're talking about, because he would have that confidence to come into a big, major project like this. Josh, when Jafar banishes Aladdin to the Iceland, where is that Iceland in the Middle East? Where is any of this stuff? I mean, <laughs> they, they, truthfully, they maybe should have abstracted it more. Of course, this takes place in Agrabah, which is, you know, a fictional kingdom. And I think maybe early on it was meant to take place in Saudi Arabia or some more definitive real place. And I feel like if they had maybe moved further away from the specifics of this region, they would have been in less trouble. Better off. 
with yeah. the with the stereotypes or whatever. So that that ice thingy didn't really bother me. <laughs> because because there were no uh, offensive stereotypes about ice. <laughs> well, I'm just saying that I wasn't looking for like a realistic depiction of the Middle East region. Also, Jafar is magical. He could have banished him to literal Iceland. You know, it's possible. Yeah. Although then he like swims back, doesn't he? So maybe that wouldn't work. Yeah, you have a fair point. Hey, so were there any things you didn't like about it, Josh? I mean, it's true that that Aladdin and Jasmine are are maybe a little bit bland. Um, I, I think they're likable enough, but they're not like the most memorable characters. And I mean, of course, it's predictable, which I like I was saying before, I think is OK. But you're not, uh, you know, wowed by the development of the plot, per se. The racial stereotypes are are troubling. And you know, despite all the praise that we're heaping on Robin Williams, in a general sense, I don't like Robin Williams. I find him annoying. And I feel like the way that this movie makes him not annoying is because of the creative animation that goes along with his sort of motor mouth babbling. And at the same time, it maybe becomes a little tiresome toward the end. And maybe I'm saying that more because I've also just watched the two straight to video Aladdin sequels, including one with Robin Williams, where you watch that and you're like, oh, here's an example of how they could have done poorly with all of his improv. So, but overall, no, I don't think, I don't have any major complaints about this movie. Yeah, I guess I just, I mean, it gets repetitive, not just, I mean, that element, but the idea of like, now Jafar is doing this and, you know, it's, it's, it, it is the same beat over and over again, but um, it's it's a fun beat, so I'm okay with it overall. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of Disney movies are like that. This isn't this isn't long. I, I think also these Disney animated movies have gotten a little too comfortable with oh yeah longer Chill than out, ninety Disney. minutes. This isn't a Judd Apatow Disney movie, that's for sure. Right, this is the right length. So, and and I also feel like we got to give credit to Jaf- Jafar. One of the things that I thought about watching it this time is one of the all-time great Disney villains. I mean, the Disney Renaissance had these great villains. You've got Ursula in The Little Mermaid. Uh, We talked about Scar in The Lion King. But Jafar, I feel like, might be the best villain from this era. He's honestly, seriously creepy, the, the way he's designed and the way he's voiced and the way he, like, controls people. And he has this sinister ambition that you can see him realizing. And so I felt like, especially if you're a little kid watching this, you'd be scared of Jafar, and you should be. What I liked about Jafar was they did a great job of utilizing his ambition as his downfall in the end. I thought that really played out well. Yeah, that he wants to be so powerful that he you know, wishes himself to be a genie, which of course traps him then. Um, and, and it's a good way to feel like the heroes have defeated him in a clever way that reflects their character. You know, Aladdin is kind of this wily, uh, you know, street rat, street rat. Exactly. But he's, he's, he's quick on his feet. He's clever. He's able to escape. You know, we were introduced. Yeah. Except when he actually has to grab the the lamp when (laughs) Jafar is like uh, terrorizing everyone where it's like right in front of him. And he's like, doop, 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 not grabbing the lamp. Yeah. And then uh, Jasmine kisses Jafar to distract Jafar and Aladdin's just like, how dare you? That's all his reaction. He can just look at Jasmine as if in that moment he was like, wait a minute, does she really love Jafar? Come on, Aladdin. So, yes. But I mean, that's obviously done so that they can keep the stakes high for the rest of that scene and get the big finale. And so, I mean, I can forgive that, I suppose. Do you know who was originally supposed to voice Jafar? 
I don't. Patrick Stewart. That would have been great. I mean, I think Jonathan Freeman does a good job, but Patrick Stewart can be a great villain, and he has that very imperious kind of tone of voice. I agree. That would have been excellent. Yes. But yeah, I mean, again, all credit to Jonathan Freeman, who's obviously not as well known as Patrick Stewart, but really gives that menace to Jafar. But that menace, I think one of the things that makes it so effective is the comic relief from Gilbert Gottfried, who yes. you have mentioned, Josh, you watch the sequels. And I think one of the things we both agree on the sequel is they just go all in on Yago. And it's like, he's so much better in a less is more type role. Right, right. As the sort of uh, yes man for Jafar or whatever. Uh, and they, they really neuter that character in the sequels in addition to putting way too much of a spotlight on him yeah he's fun as an evil parrot right he is fine and he's evil in a different way because jafar is power hungry and serious and iago is just sort of wants to ride the coattails he just wants to sit back and let someone else do the work and reap the rewards and can't we all identify with that i'm a parrot from new york how did i get to agrabah I can't do it. I can't do it at all. It's not bad. That was not bad. That was too bad. So, um, yeah. But right. And also, you know, everyone talks about Robin Williams, but but Gilbert Gottfried, uh, also uh, a successful comedian with a very distinctive style who is kind of put into this film and his style is adapted into this character. They did also try to make Iago have some of Gilbert Gottfried's actual mannerisms. And, and I think it's just as successful as what they do with Robin Williams on sort of a less flashy level. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. That's become such a big thing in cartoon movies nowadays. Like every single character, you can see that actor in the way they draw them. Right. Right. That is huge. And and also the, the kind of character that Iago is, which is the sort of uh, sycophantic, uh, self-interested sidekick to the main villain. Yeah. It's become very yeah. tropic. Yeah, it has. I mean, there's a lot of things here that they did so well and were so successful that now we see them in tons of much worse animated movies, not as successfully. One interesting fact on Clements and Musker is they had their choice of three movies. They could have done Swan Lake or The Lion King, and they chose Aladdin. So good for them. Yeah. And that Swan Lake movie, uh, of course, was never made. But um, but that's the thing, as we we're saying with with uh, this Disney stuff, is that all of these, they always have multiple projects in development that go through various different phases, uh, many of which don't actually make it. And I'm sure the version of The Lion King that they declined was probably nothing like the Lion King that was eventually released. Right. And we, we see that with Pixar and just kind of all the movement on that. But I think the, the real big points, and maybe this is for legacy. Um, so, you know what, Josh, do you want to rate this thing and come back and talk legacy on it? <laughs> we can. Yeah. I don't think there's, I, I did also want to mention, this is just my own weird quirk, but uh, Frank Welker, who is of course one of the great voice actors of all time, and does the voice of, well, Abu the Monkey, but also the, the Cave of Wonders in this film. That's very dark. And Raja. Menacing. And Raja, too. He's great at these little animal sounds or whatever. But he actually speaks as the Cave of Wonders. And all I could think about in, in those scenes was Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget, who is also voiced by Frank Welker in the exact same voice. I like Dr. Claw. I like Inspector Gadget. Frank Welker is the third highest grossing actor of all time. He's got over 17.4 billion in revenue in his movies. So. Yeah, because he just is a voice actor and all this. And I'm sure most of that is because he does the voice of Optimus Prime in the Transformers movies. Fred from uh, Scooby-Doo. He's just got, I mean, all these, you know, he's in all these Disney movies. So he's got plenty on, on his plate. 
Yeah, he's quite a legend. So uh, Dr. Claw is, it's, I mean, it's a great voice. So why not reuse it in a different I'll get you, catch it. Exactly. And that's also <laughs> the Cave of Wonders. So uh, that was just something I had to unburden myself on. So let's I feel this good away. about that. So yeah. Five magic carpets. Magic carpets it is. Cool. It gets three from me. I think I used to like it more. It did feel a little like a task this time. It's still good. I give it three magic carpets. I'm going to give it three and a half magic carpets. I do thoroughly enjoy it, um, you know, to the limits of which I uh, enjoy these films. But it was it was a very good time for me. So, Dave, I'm going to four. I think if it was something I watched uh, more regularly, it might actually lower. But once in a while, the songs are so great. It's so much fun. Yeah, and I think that's fair that that if you watch this, especially, I don't know, if you have a, a child who wants to watch it over and over and over again, yeah. you could see the flaws more easily. But, you know, every so often it's 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 lovely to it's enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll come back then in a moment and talk about the legacy of Aladdin. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we are kicking off the season talking about the number one movie at the box office, Disney's Aladdin. And we keep talking about the Disney renaissance. Of course, part of the legacy of this film is that continued Disney renaissance. This was another massive, massive hit uh, following on The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and leading into The Lion King. And that's really, this is like the peak of that era in terms yeah. of success. And I think you see that formula where it's, you know, obviously redemption angles, strong villain, uh, quirky, funny sidekicks, little romance. And of course, what I was going to say before is like, the songs are so essential to the movie, which is great, you know, that the songs actually have meaning in the film. And they're damn catchy. They are. They are damn catchy. They're they're incredibly uh, well written. But they're there for reasons. You know, that's how yeah. you're supposed to make a musical. Right. And one of the things in that process, that long process of development that we talked about, and also because Howard Ashman had passed away, he and uh, and Alan Menken had written a bunch more songs for their sort of original conception of this that weren't used. And so as much as I'm sure those songs are good, you're right in the way that they they boil this down so that they eliminate any songs that would not have been relevant. And all of the songs are key to the development of the story and the characters. And it goes back to that less is more because there's when you get a song, it is so important and you've had that breath in between. Right. So you're able to appreciate that. The other big thing for me, Josh, is that whole Robin Williams thing and that now we're uh, celebrity voice actors. This was this was the kickoff to that. Right. And this was so notable and such a big deal and used so well. And I think now, you know, it's gone sort of in this opposite direction where they cast all these. And I know there's some voice actors who still kind of object to this, where all of these celebrities get cast in these minor roles in these films and don't bring anything to the table. They just kind of show up and read a few lines in a way that a voice actor could have brought a lot more. But at the same time, the most high profile sort of examples of this do lead often to iconic characters. You mentioned Shrek, of course, which is one of the biggest examples. But he did a great job in that movie. Right. And that's what I'm saying is that like when you get a, a star who really puts all of his efforts into that and creates a character and a voice that isn't just them reading lines off a page, it can be really impressive and valuable but a lot of times that's not what happens well if you you know and we're talking we've talked about this throughout this episode 
if say they had celebrities with a little more presence playing those two leads, would that have upped the game a little on this movie? Or you're saying it would take away from those supporting characters. I think they could have had a little more teeth in them. I, I guess, but I mean, I think it's also the way those characters are written. You don't want a performer to come in and read Aladdin or read Jasmine like the way that uh, Robin Williams plays the genie or that Gilbert Gottfried plays Iago. That would of course be too not. much. Right, I agree. I'm just saying a little more chutzpah. I, I guess. A little more moxie. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate too, and this is another thing that they don't do as much now, that um, the voice actors for Aladdin and Jasmine are not the singers. That they get different. Yeah, that was different, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and now too often, I mean, Robin Williams does sing in this, and he does okay. But now too often, I feel like they get these celebrities, and they decide, oh, they have to sing the songs too. Like we have The Rock in Moana, so he's going to sing, even though The Rock he cannot sing. He did fine as a singer, and Robin Williams did fine. They're more of personality songs than like technical right. masterpieces, right? But I think we also do lose out on the opportunity for someone like Leah Salonga, who's a, you know a big Broadway star, to come in and add an extra level to the singing of the song. I mean, I suppose you get someone like Adina Menzel, who is, you know, sort of the opposite, where she's a great singer, but we can also have her do the voice. And so you get a great song and a and a good voice performance. Too. It's funny because you mentioned like Leah Salonga there and then like, but she didn't, you know, she didn't win the Grammy. She didn't win the <laughs> the Academy Award because right. Bebo Bryson and Regina Bell did the closing credit version of it. And that's what won everything. Right, right. I mean, of course, what what wins the awards is Alan Menken and Tim Rice, who wrote the song. But yes, when when the Oscars want to put a performance on their broadcast, they don't get Leah Salonga and and I don't even see I don't even remember the name of who is the the male singer. Brad Kane. Brad Kane. They don't get those people. They get Peebo Bryson and Regina Bell to do the performance. Well, look, when you can get Peebo Bryson, you get Peebo Bryson, Josh. Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, Peebo Bryson was, you know, he had also just done the duet of Beauty and the Beast with Celine Dion, and that was a huge hit as well. So Peebo Bryson was riding high on these Disney duets. Tonight, I celebrate my love for you. All right. (laughs) Peebo Bryson. Classic. Indeed, indeed. But... Josh, uh, Mankin and Tim Rice are two of the 17 people with EGOTs. They both have uh, Emmys, Grammys, Oscars, and Tonys. And and that doesn't surprise me at all. They're they're very, very talented and I'm sure are able to, you know, write songs in multiple, you know, arenas that that serve, whether that's on stage or on TV or in a film. Yeah. Tim Rice is interesting to research because he does so many different things. You know, he wrote Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita with uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber. And then he did, like I said, with uh, Bjorn Ulvies and Benny Anderson. He wrote Chess. He's been knighted. And he's got this cool radio show, Dave, that I thought you would like called Tim Rice's American Pie, where he goes state by state and talks to musicians of each state in America and talks about music native to that state. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds, does sound fun. Sounds good. The music of David Rosen, of course, is native to Nevada. So thanks, Josh. Yeah. So make sure you. Uh, <laughs> uh, Josh, um, did I want to? You know, as as successful as those two are, Clements and Musker are just as successful. Uh, Great Mouse Detective, Little Mermaid, Hercules, The Princess and the Frog, and Moana. That those are some really good movies in there. Right. And that they continue to work as these like go to directors for major Disney animated movies for decades, you know, all the way through Moana. 
And uh, I don't know if they're still working at Disney and this is a side thing or they've left Disney, but they are uh, working on an animated movie for Warner Brothers based on The Metal Men, which is a DC Comics uh, superhero property. So that's an interesting departure for that. Well, speaking of DC, that's called a professional segue, guys. Mm, Scott Wanger, who is Aladdin or Wanger, uh, is the exec producer of DC Superhero High coming up. He was also the producer on 90210 and Blackish, but we most really remember him as Steve from Full House and Fuller House. Yeah, uh, he he has another career as a writer and producer in TV, but uh, yes, and and Full House was was around at the same time that this yeah. movie came out, so he was he was uh, on that and had an even bigger presence, I think, on Fuller House, which is. The, awful but <laughs> I, I think he had a bigger presence on full house because he was dj's boyfriend for so long but i don't know but josh i do have a question about it because mm. you watched two of these sequels i just watched return to jafar i thought that was it uh wanger played aladdin in seven movies there were like six direct to dvd sequels of this thing well there's only the two direct to dvd direct vhs really sequels directly to aladdin um, but then the characters pop up in various other Disney projects. Gotcha. And so, yes, he does continue to play uh, Aladdin in all of these various things. And Linda Larkin, who does the voice of Jasmine, also plays Jasmine in those sequels, plus in tons of other projects. And Jasmine even shows up more because she's a Disney princess. So a lot of these things where they have the princesses together, Aladdin isn't there, but Jasmine is there. And her voice career is really like, if you look at her credits, they're like, yeah, at least 50% Jasmine. And she hasn't done a whole lot of other stuff. But hey, what a way to make a career. Sure. And I'm sure they both get tons and tons of royalties from this film, as well as the sequels, uh, which I sadly did watch. The Return of Jafar from 1994 and Aladdin and the King of Thieves from 1996. And and those two movies sort of bookended the Aladdin TV series, which was produced by the same team and featured the same actors and same characters and aired 86 episodes between uh, 1994 and 1995. and I've never watched that TV series, and that is un- it's one of the only Disney Disney Afternoon, the syndicated shows that were big in the 90s. It's one of the only ones that isn't on Disney Plus for some reason. But the movies are, and they are very bad. Do not watch them. They are terrible. Uh, the animation is poor. The songs are second rate. The stories are really weak. Jason, as you mentioned, they give Iago way too much to do and kind of neuter his character. They make him a good guy. Um, it, you, I the think third like, one's not even better. It's slightly better, but it's still not good. Um, no. In the, the third one, they, so as, as you were talking about, Jason, we had, uh, Robin Williams had this dispute with Disney over the use of his image and name in marketing. And so he was on the outs with them. And for that Return of Jafar film, as well as for the whole TV series, they get Dan Castellaneta, who is known as the voice of Homer Simpson. He plays the genie. <laughs> And it's not, yeah, that's that's an accurate encapsulation of how that all goes. Um, it's not so good. It sounds to me like, and I don't know, Jason, what your impression was, but it sounds to me like he's almost sort of trying to do a Robin Williams impression, but not quite. I don't yeah, know. it's not good. And it, 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 you know what it is? It's, you know, we're talking about how these songs are motivated, but it seemed like a lot of the Robin Williams improvs were motivated. And in Return of Jafar, they're like, hey, uh, do a Russian voice now. Hey, uh, you know, do an Australian voice now. And there's no purpose for any of it. Right, right. It is just like we have to have that manic energy and get him to change into a whole bunch of things. And it's yeah. So the third film, 
which again was was sort of to to close out that TV series that Dan Castellaneta had done 86 episodes of. And he recorded the voice for the genie for the third film and they animated it all. And then they uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg left Disney and the new head of Disney came in. He mended fences with Robin Williams. They got Robin Williams to come back as the genie. They deleted Dan Castellaneta's whole performance, got, Rob, got Robin Williams to re-record it, including a bunch of his improv, and reanimated it. They gave the genie more scenes and I think maybe another song. And it's bad. It's bad. You, you know, watching that third movie, it, like I think I was saying, it almost retroactively made me annoyed with his performance in the first movie because it just doesn't work in that third one. Dave, did you ever play the Aladdin video game for Sega Genesis? Hell yeah, I did. Great wow. game. Yeah, right. loved it. Loved it. Do you play as yeah. Aladdin or as the genie? Uh, as Aladdin. Okay. Yeah, the, the, those games, that, that was actually, talk about golden age. That was like a golden age for movie to video game adaptations because all those Disney games were awesome at that moment. Um, I, I've never seen these uh, direct-to-video sequels, but I did want to quote Jason's letterbox review of, of Return of <laughs> oh, Go for Jason. I'm excited for this. <laughs> the genie is too sassy. Not a good thing. I, I just really like. Yeah, because he's sassy in the first one to a to a point of, uh, you know, the threshold of the sassiness where we want him, and then he's overbearing in the second one. Yeah. He is, and and he is in the third one too. You think, oh, Robin Williams is going to make this more palatable, and he really doesn't. And also, you're talking about unmotivated, like. There's so many pop culture references in that third one that have like the genie has like laser guns and all of this stuff that that breaks the illusion of the the setting of Agrabah in this, you know, nebulous sort of past. And I know it's the genie and he can do whatever. But to me, it was just like, did the genie need to turn into like Ed 209 from Robocop? Like, where did that come <laughs> from? And that's one thing he does in that third movie. Well, Josh, I have not watched the live action remake, which I know you also do not like, and I plan on not watching. And that is a good plan. Um, it is bad. And like basically all of these Disney live action remakes, it, it just misses the point, I think, in a lot of ways. And and as, as much CGI as you throw in there and you can turn Will Smith blue, it doesn't match up not only to Robin Williams' performance, but to what they can do in animation that you can't do in live action with all the transformations and, and the crazy stuff going on. It just makes it sort of dull and mundane. Um, the stars, uh, Naomi Scott and, and Mina Masood, who play Jasmine and Aladdin, they're, they're fine and they can sing. They, they have, there's a new song for Jasmine to give her a solo number that was also fine. But there's no reason you watch that whole movie and you can't think of any reason for it to exist as a piece of its own ar artistic vision other than uh, money. You know, exactly. <laughs> and intellect. And that's I, I'm, that's been my reaction to basically all of these live action remakes, sadly, which I all of which I have seen um, mm. They're They're almost never they're almost never any good. So it should be mentioned that that movie, though, made a lot of money. Sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's also a Broadway adaptation of Aladdin. The legacy is it's just money grabs right here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's the legacy of pretty much every Disney thing, really, in the history of Disney, including things that weren't successful at first that Disney has now managed to turn into, you know, these cash cows via nostalgia and reboots and reimaginings and all of that. So, uh, well. Good for them, I guess. I guess. What a sad ending to this episode. But I got nothing else, Josh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know if you want to mention anything more about Gilbert Gottfried. 
Um, oh yeah, we should definitely talk about what a legend he was as a comedian. As a, he was always working, obviously as a not just a voice actor, but as an actor. He was on SNL. Uh, you know, uh, most of us remember him from the Aristocrats uh, as the man who could tell that joke the most filthy. Uh, and of course, on the Comedy Central roast, he was just a comedian that other comedians loved. And I recommend watching the documentary Gilbert about him. Yeah, I haven't seen that. That's uh, this is a big movie for uh, documentaries with first names because you can also watch the Howard Ashman documentary Howard to go mm. with Gilbert. Um, not I, which I haven't seen that either. Well, Josh, you know, and uh, you, uh, you're right. Oh, you should have. I should have. So a little more. Robin Williams also extremely uh, four, four Emmy nods, one win for Goodwill Hunting for Academy Award nominations. I should say he did win in two Emmys, six Golden Globes, two SAGs, five Grammys, and then two of the movies I wrote down because I was like, what are some good ones we could recommend that maybe people haven't seen from him? I think we both like One Hour Photo and World's Greatest Dad. Yeah, World's Greatest Dad is really good. Uh, I did like One Hour Photo at the time. I don't remember a lot about it, but I think one of the great things about World's Greatest Dad is that. Robin Williams, especially later in his career, had these sort of two modes. He was either like crazy manic comedy guy or he was like very serious sentimental guy. And and World's Greatest Dad allows him to have that sort of toned down version of his persona while also being this very dark comedy that's funny. And I think it mixes that really well. Well, I was actually thinking about it because imagine what he would be doing today with this boom in content and you know, he was a risk taker because he was such a big star. He was able to take those risks. So I think he would have been able to do that Bill Murray type thing, or we're talking about Ethan Hawke doing it now, where you can kind of pick your projects and just do really cool things. I think there was a lot of cool things he would have been doing today. Yeah, sadly, a lot of potential that was lost there. Robin Williams uh, died in 2014 and, and Gilbert Godfrey died just a couple months ago in, in April, 2022. Very sad there, both. Yeah. Uh, Dave, do you remember, Dave and I were both fans of the state. Do you remember mm. the sketch with Gilbert Godfrey? Yeah. I forgot that he was on it, but now that you mention it, yeah. Uh, where there's a teacher named Mr. Magina and they all make fun of him because his name is Magina. And then first all the students make fun of him. And then for some reason, just out of nowhere, Gilbert Godfrey walks in holding a bowl and he says, poor Mr. Magina, have some chicken soup. And Mr. Magina goes, thanks. Do you have any crackers? And Gilbert Godfrey goes, crackers, you bastard. I don't know if I've seen that, but it's great just hearing you recount it. It's hilarious. One of the yeah. state's finer moments. I, yeah. I definitely watched the state in the in the 90s as well. I probably saw that and forgot about it, but that is, that is hilarious. Um, so the last thing that I wanted to mention about the legacy of this film is that in 2015, the company Public Policy Polling did a political poll and found that 30% of Republicans and 19% of Democrats were in favor of bombing Agrabah. So <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And uh, that's perfect timing because we're recording this the day after Roe versus Wade was overturned. So we see that the adults in charge are really the ones who should be. Yeah, the intelligence of people. I mean, to, to be fair, the question was framed as, how would you feel about bombing Agrabah? Do you support it? Do you oppose it or are you not sure? And so even if you know that Agrabah is fictional, like how do you answer that question? 
I mean, honestly, I think that would make for an interesting sequel. And if we're going to reboot it, like the bo- Aladdin and the bombing of Agrabah might be an interesting way to yeah, go. Yeah, the, U- the U.S. bombs Agrabah and the genie has to come up with magic spells to defend against the U.S. military. <laughs> Absolutely. Fun for the whole family. <laughs> Why not? It can't be worse than Return of Jafar. Oh, that's There true. you go. Uh, so that is Aladdin and that is this episode of awesome movie year. Check us out on social media. You can check us out on social media. We are at awesomemovieyear.com. I'm at, uh, not me, but we're still at awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome movie pod on Twitter. We appreciate all the feedback. Like I said, we're getting so much feedback for this one. And Dave, I think me and you, I don't know, Josh, if you're participating in this, but we've had so much, uh, heat so many disagreements with the audience that we're doing the 1992 awesome movie or clapbacks. If you loved Aladdin more than I did, or if you hated it more than Josh and Dave, hit us up at amypod at allpointswest.net, right? Is that the email? What a great, simple email, Dave. Thanks for picking that one. amypod at allpointswest.net. Give us a quick voice memo and give your opinion, and we're going to try to post it uh, in the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces group on Facebook for all you for you guys. So do that. Uh, as we've already said, I'm going for Jason on Letterboxd, JasonHarrisComedy.com on all of the socials along with JHarrisComedy.com. And uh, that's it for me, Josh. Go for Jason.com. Oh, yeah, I have a website. It's so bad that I forgot about it. It's called GoForJason.com. And of course, if you want to give us feedback on any of that social media, if you want to Give us feedback on Twitter, on Facebook, in our Facebook page, or in the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces group. We're happy to get your responses wherever you want to give them to us. Voice memos or long written screeds, whatever you have feedback for us, we're happy to hear it. Uh, you can also find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at Signalbleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Well, Josh, we're doing the first feature of 1992. And we chose this one because none of us are really sure what happened to this guy afterwards. It's a movie called Reservoir Dogs by some gentleman named Quentin Tarantino. So we'll find out whatever happened to him. So tune in next time for Reservoir Dogs, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.